In Sheffield, Massachusetts, in 1773, revolution was in the air, and Colonel John Ashley was at the center. He was a local businessman, and he often hosted other businessmen in his home to discuss what revolution from the British Empire could look like. These men were plotting out the ideals of a new nation. There's a committee of 12 people who are meeting in this little study upstairs. They're throwing their ideas around and they're writing it out. That's Mark Wilson. He's the associate curator and manager of the Ashley's home, which was turned into a museum. The Sheffield Resolves is basically a statement of grievances against British occupation. And they're writing things like, you know, we are slaves to the king. These you know, white individuals are writing, we are slaves to the king, but they are slaveholders themselves. In fact, while Colonel John Ashley was having these meetings in the attic, an enslaved woman he owned was attending to the men. Her name was Elizabeth, and she was listening. So she's standing in the room, in the door, bringing food and drink out. And so she hears what is being spoken of in that room about this statement against I don't want to be British. You know, I don't want to be part of the British system anymore. Um, And she hears that. But she also hears that one phrase about that all men are created free and equal. That sticks with her. All men are created equal. That line stays with Elizabeth as she goes about her days in the Ashley house. Until one day, years later, she would fight for her freedom. My name is Baudelaire, and this is Atlas Obscura, a celebration of the world's strange, incredible, and wondrous places. Today, we're going to Sheffield, Mass., to hear the story of the Ashley House and the story of a true patriot who tested the rhetoric of the revolution. More after this. When was the last time I took a road trip? How many national parks could I hit in two weeks? What about hotels? Wait, hey, Erica, how much am I spending on travel? When your questions about life turn into questions about money, there's Erica, the virtual financial assistant to help you spend, save, and plan smarter. Only from Bank of America. What would you like the power to do? Erica is only available in the English language. You must download the latest version of the mobile banking app, only available on select mobile devices. Your chat may be recorded and monitored for quality assurance. Message and data rates and additional terms may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you're looking for a place where the wide open skies and the towering mountains inspire you to find an untapped part of yourself, you might want to take a trip to Wyoming. It's a place where bold, curious spirits forge their own way on all types of adventures. There is no shortage of iconic, expansive landscapes out there. You can discover breathtaking hikes, stunning state parks, authentic Western culture, and other historic sites, along with the tales of famous outlaws like Butch Cassidy and pioneers like Buffalo Bill Cody. The truth lies west. Discover yours at TravelWyoming.com. The Ashley House looks like a lot of other colonial homes in western Massachusetts. You know, they're all over the place out here in New England. You know, that you look at the front facade, there's two stories, there's a big chimney coming out of the middle of the roof. But the rooms themselves have the original paneling, which for these old houses is pretty remarkable that that skin of the interior is still there. It was built in the 1730s and became an homage to Colonel John Ashley about 100 years ago. He was a local businessman who was part owner of a nearby iron foundry. 
He also enslaved 11 people. And the museum was meant to honor his contributions the years leading up to and during the Revolutionary War. Back then, as locals started getting swept up in the revolutionary fervor in the early 1770s, Colonel Ashley, one of the more wealthy guys in the area, decided he would also support the revolution. But Mark Wilson says it wasn't an emotional decision. I would not call him a revolutionary. He was a businessman, and I think he was responding to the community and the town of Sheffield that was looking to make a statement against Mm. this British occupation. He was going the way that the wind was blowing. Exactly. They're 120 miles from Boston. You know, Boston is where it's all happening. Mm. He's pretty happy. He's making a lot of money off the land, and he's in the middle of commerce, so he's he's doing fine. Mm-hmm. Um, he doesn't really have to get involved, but but this opportunity, working with these people, he does. That title of colonel, more of an honorary one. Colonel John never actually ends up fighting, even after the war starts. But he does donate iron from his foundry for the effort and holds meetings in his upstairs attic. And by 1773, this committee has a list of grievances against British occupation. They called it the Sheffield Declaration. Which the wording of it is very similar to wording three years later in the uh, Declaration of Independence, um, that all men men are created equal And, you know, that's being written in the upstairs study in the Ashley House. This is where many narratives about revolutionary figures in America end. But in the last 20 or so years, a new story about this time period has emerged and shifted to Elizabeth, the enslaved woman who was eavesdropping on Colonel Ashley's meetings. She was, um, by all accounts, extremely smart and intelligent. Uh, She was a, uh, she helped to run the household with Mrs. Ashley. So she was part of the enslaved household staff. I was also a midwife. So she gave uh, medical and other needs to the community. She was recognized by the community down in Sheffield as a a great caregiver. So by all accounts, a really remarkable individual. So Elizabeth is low-key listening to everything going on in the attic and realizes that these words could one day be the key to her own freedom. The men don't ever second-guess their talk of liberty around an enslaved person because, well, they figured enslaved people didn't count as full people, thus didn't deserve the kind of liberty they were talking about. And Elizabeth never lets it be known that she was listening to the men. She continued doing her work in the Ashley House like nothing had changed. By the early 1780s, the war for American freedom was underway, but closer to its end. But for the enslaved people in the Ashley household, not much was changing. Elizabeth had a daughter named Betty, and an incident involving her in the living room of the Ashley house would change the history of slavery in Massachusetts. And in the winter of just about this time, 1780, there was an incident in the house where Hannah, um, Mrs. Ashley, struck out at either Bet or the daughter, Betty, with an iron poker. There was some disagreement. So Mrs. Ashley struck at um, one of those two individuals. The story is, and, and Bet, the elder Bet, had a scar on her arm because she blocked the blow of this hot, uh, this iron fireplace poker. Elizabeth demanded an apology for Mrs. Ashley, which at that time is extremely risky. An enslaved person demanding an apology from their enslaver. But Elizabeth remained calm, stared her enslaver in the face, and insisted 
that she apologized. She didn't get the apology, and she took her daughter and left the house. She just, she left. Elizabeth walked straight out of the Ashley house with her daughter and headed to the home of Theodore Sedgwick, a local lawyer who was one of the men Elizabeth used to serve in the attic. Just by being around the Sheffield committee as often as she was, she knew who she might be able to go to for help, and Elizabeth figured Theodore Sedgwick was her best bet. When she got to his home, she asked if he would help her sue the Ashley family for her freedom. And there were cases going on with enslaved individuals who were suing for either damages or for physical harm and to get money for that harm. Um, so there were cases within the court system where enslaved people were suing for damages. But nobody had said, I want you to sue for my freedom based on this thing I've heard that says all people are created free and equal. That's, the, that's what makes her case different. And in April of 1781, Elizabeth's case went to court. But being not just Black, but also a woman, she was not legally allowed to go to court under her own name. Multiple layers against her. So the name of Brahm, who was another enslaved individual in the house, is added to the case. So it's actually uh, Brahm and Bet versus Ashley. So the lawyers thought, well, we'll add a man to the case. It'll probably give it some weight and some strength. Elizabeth wins her case, and all of the enslaved people of the Ashley House are now free. The case is also cited by other enslaved people fighting for their freedom. Namely, Quack Walker, whose case went to the Massachusetts State Supreme Court in 1783. And when he was granted his freedom, it effectively ended slavery in Massachusetts. But now a free woman, the first thing Elizabeth did was change her name. Until that point, she's known as Bed or Betty. So she becomes Elizabeth Freeman because, as far as we know, the way she put it is, if I only had a minute to live, I'd want it to be as a free person. And, you know, that was, I, I think that was certainly in her mind, freedom and what it represented for her as an enslaved person was this ideal and she attained it. And so the name Freeman has no connection to any other individual that we know of at the time. She made the name her own. Um, it is man, but it's a free man, free person. After Elizabeth gained her freedom, she got a note from Colonel John Ashley asking if she would be willing to return to working at his home, but this time as a paid employee. Elizabeth tells him she will never work in that house again. So she goes and actually lives with the Sedgwick family. And they're in Sheffield, in the same town. She goes with her daughter, lives in the family. Um, We know her daughter becomes a servant in the household. She's a paid member of the staff. In 1785, the Sedgwick's moved north to Stockbridge. Um, So they leave Sheffield. Elizabeth and her daughter, Bette, go with them uh, to the Stockbridge. And by 1802-1803, she owns land. So Elizabeth goes from being enslaved in 1780 to a landowner in 1803. Yeah, so she had her own farm um, and her own household. By the time Elizabeth herself became a landowner, Colonel John Ashley had died. He had passed the year earlier in 1802. The Ashley house stays in the Ashley family until the mid-1800s, where a new family buys it. And it actually isn't until the 1920s when the descendants of Colonel John Ashley buy the house again to keep the historic home of Colonel John Ashley 
and the family. And then by 1960, it becomes a museum and a local group is formed uh, to start the museum. So that's 1960. Mm. And the museum is at first to honor the Ashleys, right? It is. It's the Colonel John Ashley House. So that story mm. has always been the primary one, the colonial settler. Yeah. Um, the trustees who I work with, the trustees of reservations, came in in 1972 and took it over. But it really hasn't been until the 21st century, you know, the early years of the 21st century, when the story flipped and became Elizabeth's story. And, wow. and, that, and his Ashley's name is still on the house, but it's really her story that's primary and it's so significant and yeah. the story that's told. Yeah, because it seems like the in the story that like she's the real patriot in all this, right? Yeah. Because she's the one that's really trying to stay true to the ideals of, of the revolution. Exactly. Yeah, and that's beautifully put. Um, she's the one who's fighting for those freedoms that the Declaration of Independence is, uh, is stating. The Ashley House is open every day and is free to visit. Guided tours of the house are offered seasonally and should be starting back up in the spring. The house is also a part of an African-American heritage trail through the Housatonic River Valley. We'll add a link for more info in the show notes. I would like to thank Mark Wilson for sitting down with me for today's episode. This podcast is a co-production of Atlas Obscura and Stitcher Studios. This episode was edited by Tracy Samuelson. Our production team includes Dylan Therese, Doug Baldinger, Manolo Morales, Gabby Gladney, Camille Stanley. Our technical director is Casey Holford. This episode was sound designed by Chris Naka and mixed by Luce Fleming. If you want to learn more, be sure to visit atlasobscura.com. There's a link in our episode description. And my name is Baudelaire. Ready for a new and exciting career challenge? At DHL Supply Chain, you're part of a team committed to creating innovative solutions for some of the biggest brands in the world. We're recognized as a best place to work, where people are valued, supported, and respected. DHL Supply Chain is hiring for a wide range of salaried operational and functional roles. Previous experience in logistics is welcome, but not required. All opportunities, no boundaries. DHL Supply Chain. Apply today at joindhl.com. The world isn't wide enough for those with an insatiable desire for discovery. The all-new 2024 Lincoln Nautilus Hybrid SUV offers the power and freedom to explore further and deeper than ever before. Intuitive, smart features ensure that you're always connected to the road ahead. Inside, a thoughtfully designed cabin immerses you in a universe that is all your own. The larger-than-life panoramic display spans the entire width of the cabin. It's customizable and interactive. Drivers can even personalize their backgrounds with a series of nature-inspired themes. This vehicle signals the arrival of an exciting new chapter for Lincoln. Discover more about the 2024 Lincoln Nautilus at Lincoln.com.